And turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Thank you, Sarah, for playing this evening, as well as this morning. Galatians 3. Find ourselves in verses 19 through 24 this evening. The title of the message, The Purpose of the Law. Over the past several weeks, we have learned that the law has absolutely no power to justify. The law has no power to justify. And the question comes up then, and it was certainly, it would have been a question for those that were reading. It's a question that comes up even today. What purpose then does the law serve? What good is or was the law of Moses. Did it have any purpose at all? Should we look at the law today with contempt? Should we appreciate it for what it was? Should we appreciate it for what it is? Paul has spent much time telling us in Galatians what the law is not. He has elevated the gospel. He has uh, contended against this false gospel that would uh, seek to bring the law into salvation. He's contending already with this false gospel that would seek to bring the law into perfection or sanctification. And now he is going to seek to clarify the purpose of the law. Well, then what good is the law? Let's take a look together. We'll read the entire chunk of, that we'll, we'll be talking about this evening, verses 19 through 24, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. The Scriptures tell us in uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scriptures have concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto faith, which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So we begin in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. And Paul, uh, we already read it, but let me read verse 19 again. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Paul says that the law was added... <clears throat> excuse me, not added to faith for the purpose of salvation or added to faith for the purpose of, sal of sanctification. That's not what the idea of added here. It means that the law was brought into the picture, added to the consciousness of man, that God codified His law until the time of the law, the revelation of God and His expectations were limited. They were limited to creation and conscience. They were limited to personal declarations of God himself to, to men, either directly or by means of a prophet. The law would be added not as a means of changing the eternal decrees of God as it pertains unto salvation, but as an added source of revelation concerning God, his character, and his expectations. The law superseded nothing. The law invalidated nothing of what had come in the past. 
The law was simply adding more information about who God is and his character and his expectations. Now, the particular revelation this text tells us uh, is that the law was intended to manifest our transgressions. It was intended to bring about some some effect in relation to our transgressions. This word speaks particularly in every context where it is found biblically, the word transgressions, of a violation or a legal disregard for the requirements of the law. That God had established a code of conduct and is asking men to adhere, uh, to adhere himself to that code of conduct entirely. That the law was added because men are violators, because man, men are transgressors. And this law was added, the scriptures tell us, until the seed should come unto whom the promise was made. Well, we've been talking about this, right? This is right within the context of what we were seeing with Abraham and the promises. That there was this one, this seed. And this seed that these promises were made to, Abraham and his seed, and that seed is Christ. So Paul tells us that the law was added because of transgressions until the time that the seed, that Jesus Christ, should come. The promise was made unto the seed, and this promise was the promise of the gospel. There is coming one who would offer himself for the atonement of all men, and in doing so, all men could be justified through belief on his name. Now, the implication then is that once the seed came, the purpose of the law was completely fulfilled and the law was no longer necessary or effectual. Until the seed would come, God ordained the law, added because of transgressions. The law would provide to those under the law a keener sense of their own incapacity to meet God's holy requirements and fulfill God's righteous demands. The law would reveal to men the wickedness of their own hearts and their natural predisposition to love that which is opposed to God. The law would also serve not just to reveal their sin, but to restrain their sin. When it says because of transgressions, uh, in large part Paul is speaking of the idea of revealing sin. The fact that when you have a law that you're pitted up against, you realize how, how short you fall to that law. But also as a means by which to restrain sin. That's what laws are intended to do, right? That's what God has given to government, the privilege of ordaining laws. And those laws are meant to restrain the natural sin nature and to punish those who would seek to violate others and to violate those laws. And Paul will elaborate more on this in the verses to come, so we'll get back to that. This law, Paul tells us, was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, this is a really interesting phrase, to be sure, and one which opens up an entirely new area of study which we'll only briefly touch upon this evening. The law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. When we think of the giving of the law, we think of Moses going up to Mount Sinai, receiving the law as fire burned on the mountain, uh, God writing the tablets of stone with his finger. He's up there for 40 days, and 40 days later, he returns. We know from Exodus chapter 31, 18, that those two original tablets, before Moses shattered them, that those two original tablets 
of stone containing the Ten Commandments that we, as we call them today, were written quite literally with the finger of God. But this verse speaks of the fact that it was angels that ordained, that word meaning command or appointed, the law. Now, when we see the word angel in the New Testament, we have to approach this with care. The word angel in the Greek and in the Hebrew means messenger, and it does not need to, it is not required that the word angel refer to an angelic or spiritual being, whether heavenly or demonic. The word angel can, can also refer to a mortal, human, earthly messenger that is ordained by God with a message. As a matter of fact, later on in the book of Galatians, we'll see Paul say, you received me as an angel of God. And we'll talk a little bit more about what Paul could be saying and could not be saying when we get there. So it is just as valid to see the word angel as referring to a human messenger as to a spiritual messenger. So who are these angels? Who appointed the law in the hand of a mediator or ordained the law in the hand of a mediator? And for a possible thought concerning this statement, I refer you to Deuteronomy 33. I I won't ask you to turn there. I'll have it up on the screen. If you'd like to turn there, certainly you may. This is a a connection you might want to make and write in your Bible uh, if you're interested in this. In Deuteronomy 33, we find the very final blessing of Moses before he dies. These are his final words to Israel. And we read this in verses 1 through 4. And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, which are all speaking of the same event, which is the giving of the law, And he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yea, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand. And they sat down at thy feet. Everyone shall receive of thy words. Moses commanded us a law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. Deuteronomy tells us that at the time the law was given, the Lord was present and shined forth from the mount. And the scriptures tell us with Ten thousands of his saints. And then the law came forth as fire. Now, as you study this out, that word saints means holy ones, and it can be used again. It's used of Israel. It's used of those who are in Israel who have believed on God. It is also used of angels. And we see it quite regularly used, in fact, of angels as the holy ones. And from the context, it seems as though as God came with these saints, it it would be uh, very difficult to see anything other than angels in this statement. Angelic being spiritual beings. So if we take this verse and we recognize the saints to be angels here, particularly in Deuteronomy, uh, in in the first reference to, to saints, the second reference to saints is a little less clear here in Deuteronomy 33, but that first reference, if we see that, and we recognize that without question what Moses is attempting to describe here is the event in Exodus 20 when God came down and the mount burned with fire and He spoke to the people the law. This is right before Moses went up to receive the rest. 
He spoke to the people the Ten Commandments and the people were so afraid they thought they were going to die and they said, Moses, never let God speak to us again. You talk with God and then, and then you talk with us and you be, here's the word, a mediator for us, right? And so because they were so fearful that if they heard the voice of God again, they would die, uh, they didn't want to hear the voice of God anymore. And, and this was intentional. This was God saying, I want you to recognize my holiness. As a matter of fact, later God would say it was a good thing for them. This was, this was a good thing that they asked not to hear my voice again. That means they're recognizing my holiness. That means they're recognizing that I am set apart. And so this event is the event that's being spoken of here. And as we see this event unfold, it's likely that Moses is describing here God coming down with his Angels, And that's the phrase that I would like us to, to particularly consider. He came with ten thousands of his saints. We know that angels were present. But as we read in Exodus chapters 20 through 32, we find continually this phrase as Moses is receiving the law on Mount Sinai and the Lord spake unto Moses saying... And we thus assume that God was speaking directly. But it would seem as though, at least to some degree, this may not have been the case. Perhaps it was not for those 40 days that Moses was indeed receiving direct revelation from the voice of God, that same trumpeting, fearful voice that, that appeared before in, in the ears of the people in Exodus 20. It's possible that it was an angel that, that was ordaining this, and speaking for the Lord. We find as we transition back to Galatians 3 that the responsibility to establish the law in Israel was a task that God had delegated in some form to his angelic beings. And as we consider this in Galatians 3.19, where we find Paul state that the law was ordained by angels, we recognize, or we need to recognize, that this is not the only time in the New Testament that tells us of this fact. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, when he is filled with the Holy Ghost and he speaks to the Sanhedrin, he rehearses the history of Abraham and Moses, he states that the nation had been delivered by Moses, uh, being sent by the angel, that would be the Lord, the angel of the Lord that appeared to him in the burning bush and received the law by an angel, he says. He received the law by an angel. Perhaps once again, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Maybe that was the angel. Then, as Stephen finalizes his rebuke, he tells them this in Acts 7. I'll read to you verses 52 and 53. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. The law, showing the coming of the just one, the seed, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, the text says, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. This word disposition, very similar to the word that we see in Galatians 3, not the same, but similar. The word meaning arrangement or institution, the institution of the law, the ordination of the law, the arranging of the law was done by angels, Stephen tells us. By angels. The same concept is again stated in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 
Therefore, the writer tells us, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, and he goes on to warn them that if, if the word spoken by angels, if the law, if the law itself was that stern and important and necessary, spoken by angels was that steadfast, and every transgression was dealt with, he goes on to say, how much greater is the establishment of the law of grace through salvation, and how much greater the consequence if a man disregards so great salvation. So it is that in three distinct New Testament passages, we see it said that angels were given the responsibility of instituting the law of God. But then we find that the angels delegated this law to another. It says it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. The word mediator speaks of a person who stands between two parties in order to communicate their mutual needs to one another. In this case, the one who stood between the spiritual, that would be God and his angels, and Israel as pertaining to the law. And we know without question that this man, this mediator, was Moses. There's no question biblically that Moses was the mediator. He was the one that stood between God and man. And as we look in Exodus 20, this is exactly what Israel asked of him. Be our mediator. God was going to give His law to them directly. They said, no, we can't handle that. Moses, be our mediator. So Moses goes up to the mountain. God, insta- God gives it over to the angels to teach him. And the angels give the law to Moses. And then Moses gives the law to the people. Ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. We then read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 20, Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Now as Paul continues his statement, he's now making an argument. Now he's talking about the law, and he talks about this law that was ordained of angels, that was put into the hand of a mediator. And he states here that a mediator cannot be a mediator of one. You don't need a mediator for just one party. There must be two parties to have a go-between, representing the needs and interests of both sides. You could imagine perhaps a guy coming up and saying, hey, um, I I need you to be a, a mediator for me. And you say, okay, I can do that. Who do you want me to talk to? Oh, no one. Well, how can I mediate if there's not a second person involved. Well, I just want you to mediate for me. What am I going to do? There's nothing to do if it's just one person. There's no mediation. You can't be an objective third party representing two sides of an issue if there's not two sides to the issue. If there's only one side, then there's only one side. You don't need mediation if there's only one side. And so Paul says, a mediator cannot be just a mediator of one. He says this though, but God is one. Now consider again the context within which we find ourselves. Paul is, is giving this argument on the heels of speaking about 
Abraham. And if you recall the covenant, the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, we, we didn't teach this as thoroughly. Um, we didn't continue in the text to, to, to finish the covenant. But what, what you do know and what you need to know about that covenant that God made with Abraham is that the covenant He made with Abraham was a one-sided covenant. There was no mediator between God and Abraham, was there? There was nobody standing between God and Abraham to mediate that covenant. God gave that covenant to Abraham directly because the covenant was not a two-way thing. It was not a two-way covenant. It was a unilateral covenant given by God to Abraham without any human merit, without any human responsibility, without anything, any conditions attached to it. There's no mediation necessary in a covenant like that. Because there aren't two sides to be represented. Abraham couldn't have said, well, God, see, I need my side. I need to be protected here. I need my side represented. Because God wasn't asking anything of Abraham. And do you know what God did in order to make sure that it was without a doubt that God was asking nothing of him? God put Abraham to sleep, right? When he sealed that covenant. In Genesis 15, God put Abraham to sleep while he walked through the blood of the covenant to make sure that it was clear that this was a covenant from God to Abraham and Abraham had absolutely no part. He had absolutely no role to play. He had absolutely no obligation, no responsibility to this covenant. It was a one-way covenant. Abraham didn't have to worry about his side because there was no side. This was God promising him things with no strings attached. And because it's a one-way covenant, there was no mediator. There needed to be no mediator. Now, with that being said, we know that Jesus Christ is a mediator today, isn't He? The Scriptures tell us there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the mediator of the new covenant. He stands between us and God as our intercessor, pleading our righteousness before the throne and pouring out His blessings from above. But that is not within the scope of Paul's argument here. He is contrasting Abraham and the covenant made, the promise made to Abraham and to the seed of Abraham, and the law. The law needed a mediator because it was a two-party covenant. God had obligations and Israel had obligations. God says, if you obey me, I am obliged to bless you. I can't just say, I don't feel like blessing you today if you obey me. If you obey me, I'm obliged to bless you. But by that token, if you disobey me, I am obliged to curse you. I can't just say, well, I'm feeling extra special this day. No, if you, if you disobey, I must curse you because this is the covenant. Israel had to hold up their end and God had to hold up His end. Two-way covenant needed a mediator. It was Moses as a mediator. It was the high priests as a mediator. There was always a mediator between God and the people. But Abraham's covenant was not like that. To this degree, we can well understand Paul's point that the law was not intended to ever replace or supersede the Abrahamic covenant. In every way, the law was inferior. 
The law was not a one-way promise. The law had obligations on both sides. The law had to have a mediator. It was designed not to usurp the law, not to supersede, I mean, grace or, or faith, not to supersede the promise given to Abraham, but to act as a, as a revealing force, as a restraining force until the promised seed should come. Well, Paul then asks a natural question in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? If the law had this mediation and the law was different from Abraham's covenant and the law, uh, it was two-way, so it was inferior, well, then is it, is it against the promises of God? Is it against the seed? Is it against faith? Is the law working contrary to everything that God designed? If the law cannot usurp faith and it cannot give life and it is inferior to the promises of Abraham and Christ in every way, then does the law work in opposition to the promise? See, the law says you must do or you will be cursed. You must do or you will be punished. The promise says believe and be blessed. So aren't they opposed? Paul says, God forbid. This is the strongest negative in the Greek language. Meganoita is what it sounds like in the Greek, and it literally means may it never be. And it's the strongest negative that you can have in the Greek language. He says, absolutely not. Always and consistently translated in our King James Bible, God forbid, as that would have been one of the strongest ways to say no in the 1600s. They are not opposed. Absolutely not. The law is not opposed to grace. In fact, Paul says, if there was a law given to men that could have possibly given life, then this law would have done the trick. Contained in this law is, was, all righteousness. And, and if it were possible for righteousness to come by the law, then righteousness would have without question come by this law. Because this law, the law of Moses, was in essence and character 100% conformed to God and to his nature. But that couldn't happen. The law can't save or sanctify anyone. And why is that? Simple reason. Because no man can keep it. The law can't save anyone, not because the law is flawed. Right? Get this. The law was not flawed. The law was a perfect reflection of God's expectations and character. The problem is that man is flawed. Man is flawed. You and I can't. Have you ever been watching a young kid and they're behaving and then mom and dad, just because they want to, maybe mom and dad are about to leave to go somewhere and so they give one of those preemptive commands. Okay, I'm about to go outside and, and, and work on, on the outside of the house. Be sure that you don't fill in the blank, and all of a sudden you see something click in their minds like, I was just told not to do that, now I just have to do that. I've just got to do that. It's like because they're told they can't, it's the only reason why they want to. And that's not just a kid thing, is it? You're reading the manual for your job or for a church membership expectations or whatever it might be and you're reading that and you can't do something and you don't really like the fact that they're trying to tell you you can't do something and you immediately want to do it just because you're being told you can't. And that's human nature. And that's 
the problem with the law. It's, it's actually not a problem with the law. It's a problem with the fact that God gave the law to humans. And humans are human in every way. And when we, when we see things that, and you see thou shalt not, the human nature says, oh, I just want to do it now. I've got, I wonder why I can't do that. I wonder what he's trying to not let me do, right? It's just human nature to be that way. So, so the problem is not the law. The law is spiritual and holy and right and good, not against the promises of God at all. It was meant to guide us into the promises of the law. We'll talk about that more. The problem is us. And this, believe it or not, is good. It's a good thing. Look at verse 22. But the Scriptures have concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given unto them that believe. I wish we could... I'd love to go back to Romans uh, and, and talk through this again because Paul says so much of the same thing in a different way, just a little bit of a different angle in Romans. We, went, we did that uh, maybe a month ago. We went to Romans and we walked through Romans, what, 3, 4, 5, 6, I think, or 7. We went through a lot of chapters to try to see the argument that Paul was building about the law and about grace and about the function of the law. And all of that is, is a similar idea here. And um, Paul is, is saying a very similar idea. So I'm not going to go back there today. God gives Abraham the gospel though. Follow me here. God gives Abraham the gospel by way of promise. Abraham believes it and God counts that to him for righteousness. The law then comes and proves beyond a doubt that no man can get to God on his own. That all are under sin. The law comes to highlight sin in every man. And as we spoke a couple of weeks ago, Every man's sin thus puts him on the same level. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you have never murdered in the, in the explicit sense. We could talk about Matthew 5 and hatred and murder and adultery and lust and those things. But physically speaking, it, it doesn't matter if you've never murdered, if you've never stolen anything, if you've... Never, never done anything that would get you thrown in jail. You're just as much a sinner as anyone that's sitting in Wright County Jail right now. And that's a good thing. Because that makes sin the great equalizer, right? Which means that every single person is on the same footing before God. Because I was born into a family that taught me to obey rules, that doesn't give me any more of a leg up in favor with God. The man who spends his entire uh, adult life on death row waiting to be killed for his sin has just as much a chance to go to heaven as the pastor. Just as much chance. Because we are all under Sin, And because the Scriptures have concluded us all under sin, the promise of God by faith of Jesus Christ can be given to all that believe. Imputed righteousness is possible because there is this law out there that you and I fall desperately short of. Because even the Pharisees in their heyday had without question offended some law at some point and they should have known the first time they offended a law, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. I'm supposed to be the best of the best and I can't do this either. 
And so the Scriptures has, have concluded all men under sin. So the law of Moses, far from being the enemy of faith, was the guard, the protector, the watcher of men until the promised seed could come and reveal the spiritual means by which to overcome the sin nature which was within us. Galatians 3.23 says, But before faith came, we were kept, literally watched, protected under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. The law was intended to contain men, to shut them up, to restrain them, to guide them into the faith that was coming one day. It was intended to show man so much about himself that he would have no recourse but to recognize he can't do it himself and to fall at the feet of the only one who could. Now remember, we talked about this last week. Before Christ came, in the days of Abraham and everyone up till the time of Christ, they looked forward to the promise. They heard that there was one day coming a man who would save them from their sins. And they would recognize while still being under the law that they couldn't meet the law and they would fall on their knees before God and say, God, I need that one. I believe that you're sending that one. I need that one. And the faith that they would have in that one would be imputed unto them for righteousness. Now we look back on that promise today. We have seen that promise come to pass through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We recognize that the payment has already been made and we look in faith back to that. And if we are willing to believe that He indeed did what the Bible says He did, just like they were willing to believe that He would indeed do what the Bible says He would do, then we will have righteousness imputed unto us. And the law was intended to make it crystal clear that we have a problem. Not just creation showing us that there is a God. Not just our conscience making us feel guilty when we do certain things wrong. But now, a law in place told unto men, this is what God expects of you. And when men hear that law, there is no man that can hear that law and not recognize that he has fallen short. And so verse 24 tells us this, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. That word schoolmaster literally means tutor, instructor. The law was designed to lead men right to the necessity of a Savior right into the blessedness of the promise of faith. The purpose of the law bringing us to Christ is so that we might be justified by faith. Let's take this to the actual illustration as we see it. The law being a tutor or a schoolmaster. The law was that kindly old lady who would take the child by the hand and direct that child... The law isn't trying to keep that child for herself. The law isn't trying to horn in on anything. The law is guiding that child to Christ and says, this is the one that you want to follow and takes the hand of the child and places it into Christ so that that child can then be justified by faith. 
That's the purpose of the law. The law is holy. The law is right. The law is good. The law is not opposed to Christ. The law is not opposed to the promises. The law is meant to be the tutor that teaches you why you need the promise. That teaches you why you need. Now it can be a, might be a cold hand. It can be a hard lesson. But the law is still meant to be that guide. A guide into faith. As we apply this evening, I would like for us to consider the way that we think about the law of God. It is not uncommon in this current generation of the church to see any sort of law as deeply offensive to grace. But as we have considered a very different message from Paul this evening to Judaizing Christians, we find that while we see the insufficiency of the law made very clear, we also see that the law served or even yet serves a very legitimate purpose. And our first point this evening is this. The law is beneficial first in revealing the character of God. The law is beneficial to us in revealing the character of God. As we consider this first point, it cannot be understated. It is called the law of Moses, but we, we know that it is indeed also a law of God. It was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator, but it was the finger of God who penned its expectations. The law served to reflect the essence of what it means to be right with God because the law reflects the essence of who God is. That God is just. That He is a God of balance. That He is uncompromising in holiness. That He cannot abide the mixture of light with darkness, clean, unclean, right with wrong. I was talking to someone just the other day and they were asking me about that standard. Um, they, they said, well, what's the deal with this idea? What, how, how do you consider this idea of men not wearing the clothing of women and women not wearing the clothing of men? And as they asked this idea, it was quite clearly a reference to the Levitical expectation that men would not wear that which pertains unto a woman and that women would not wear that which pertains unto a man. And as this question was asked of me, and it's a, it's a very legitimate question that we would ask, we, we, uh, I answered that question by saying, well, we know first of all that the law has been fulfilled in Christ. We know first of all that the law, that the law of Moses does not apply to us today in that dogmatic way. But then I told this person, but here's what the law does for us. The law presents to us principles. Principles that reflect the character of God. And to whatever degree we cannot or ought not to take that law dogmatically, what we can do is recognize the principles behind it that are a reflection of God. And so we recognize that what God does not want He's not saying that a, a woman can't wear pants or that a man can't wear something that we might call a skirt. You might think of a kilt or a toga or any of those other things, right? And there are certain cultures where men wear those things and the women are the ones that wear the pants, where men wear the robes. And, and um, in, in the Roman culture, um, men would wear robes and such. They would not wear uh, trousers. And, and, and so we're seeing cultural distinctions here. But what God is showing, the the character of God, the principle of God behind the command is that God wants women to, to look and act like women and men to look and act like men. That's the principle. 
and how that principle is, is carried out in any particular culture, well, that's something we're going to have to discern. But the principle found in the law is valid. God's not telling us that we can't mix our fabrics as was prescribed in the law. God's not telling us that we can never use leaven as was often prescribed in the law. But God is showing something about His character. That God hates a false balance. That God hates the mixing of, of, of distinctions. That God wants distinction. That God wants us to avoid mixing distinctives. And we can draw that principle out of the, of the law. And we can see the character of God in it. And it can inform the way we live our lives as believers, even if we're not going back to Leviticus to figure out how I'm going to live my life today. We can go back to Leviticus to figure out how God wants me to apply principles of His character. Because the law is a reflection of the character of God. The law reveals all of these things unto us. And as Paul thought back upon his own incapacity to keep the law in Romans chapter 7, he said this in verse 12. He said, Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The law is holy. The commandment is holy. But even beyond that, Paul will say two verses later in verse 14 of Romans 7, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The law is the spiritual thing. I'm the carnal thing. The law is the perfect reflection of God's holiness. I'm the thing that can't handle it. I'm the carnal one sold under sin. The law is not a carnal solution to carnal people. The law is a spiritual representative of God's spiritual character, which men, being carnal, simply can't attain unto. The law reflects the very best of all that God is. Righteousness, justice, holiness, mercy, grace, consistency, balance, clarity. The problem is we can't live up to it. And so the law was insufficient. Except to this one purpose, the purpose to which it was truly intended, the only purpose to which it was ever truly intended, is to reveal to us our need for grace. A grace that would be offered through Jesus Christ who would fulfill for us the law and leave only the blessing of grace. Thus, as we consider the continual benefits of the law, we understand first of all that it benefits by nature because the law is spiritual and so it has the capacity to teach us much about the character of God. Point number two, we find that the law is beneficial in revealing the character of man. This is, as we've considered it tonight, the primary purpose of the law. The law shows us exactly how far we fall short of God. We read here in Galatians that the Scriptures through the law conclude us all under sin. We consider a similar thought, and we considered it not long ago in Romans chapter 3. Let me read to you Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. The law speaks to those who are under the law, making them guilty before God and stopping their mouths in any misguided attempt at self-justification. Paul would then go on to say in uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 7-9, through 9, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? 
God forbid, there's that word, that, that phrase again, God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin except by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, that's um, following after lusts, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. The law is not sin, but the law reveals our sin. Paul says that he once lived in ignorance, not knowing the degree to which he had offended the holy, righteous character of God, not considering the reality of his own wretched heart. But when the law was revealed to him, his spirit died, he said. He realized just how far short he fell. By the weight of the expectations of the law, he felt that weight with all that, what, that was in him. When he saw exactly what God expected of him, it served to show him just how very far from God's expectations he truly was. And this is the purpose of the law, that we might know just how far from God's righteousness we are as unbelievers and then be ushered into grace. Now, the Scriptures tell us that the law is not for the believer. It's for the unbeliever. It's for those who have offended the law. It's for those who are under the law. And we are no longer under the law. But this is what the law served to do. To show us our own incapacity. Our own sinfulness before God. But the law doesn't just tell us the bad news. Finally, as we've considered already this evening... It guides us into the good news. It doesn't give us the good news, does it? The law doesn't give the good news. The law looked forward to a day. It still looks, as we read the Old Testament, it looked forward to a day when the good news would come. But the law itself was just the schoolmaster. The law guides men, however, to Christ, that they may be justified by faith. The law is our schoolmaster. We will consider... This even more in the weeks to come as Paul highlights this concept a bit more. A good instructor ought to make his students recognize just how much they don't know. That's really what a good instructor does. If I went to college and every class I sat in the class and the instructor just told me a bunch of things I already knew and pandered me, which is what a lot of colleges do, but not the one I went to, and just pander you and make you think that you're okay and they don't stretch you and they don't make you realize how little you know and how much you have yet to, to, to do, then you're not getting your money worth out of that college. If that college is not pushing you to learn and to recognize how little you know, if you sit in on a college class and you say, wow, this is going to be easy, I know all of this already, you're just wasting your time in that class. An instructor is meant to highlight how much you don't know. Is meant to show you that you have needs. But a good instructor doesn't just highlight your shortcomings, do they? A good instructor doesn't just say, okay, this and this and this and this and you don't know any of it, alright, you're dismissed. No. The purpose of the instructor is not to discourage them or to make them feel inferior or just to leave them wallowing in unknowns, but to enlighten them to their own state and then be the driving force in guiding them to the solution. In guiding them to where they need to be. A good instructor exposes our weaknesses in love, and it can be tough love, and then drives us to the solution. In the case of the law, the law exposes our sin. But it never claims to be the solution in itself. 
Rather, the law regularly points to the need for pardon. The need for someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The need for grace found outside of itself. A mercy and a pardon and a grace found exclusively in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel. That you're a sinner. That because you are a sinner, there is no way that you can be right with God in and of yourself. The law shows us that there is nothing that you can do to get yourself to God. It doesn't matter if you spend every day trying to do good, you will do wrong. And if you don't do wrong externally, it's guaranteed that it's going to happen internally. It's going to happen in your heart. You're going to begrudge someone. You're going to have unforgiveness. You are going to disobey. You are going to disesteem. You are going to slander. You are going to blaspheme if in no other way, at least in your heart. And the very fact that you know that, if you know that, puts you in a place where you're ready to accept a solution. And the Gospel tells us that there's only one solution. John 14.6 Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. Jesus says, if you want to come to God, the law showing you how incapable you are of getting to God, if you want to get to Him, you have to go through Christ. And Jesus said exactly how to do that. He told Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish eternally, but have everlasting life. To place one's full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that that Jesus died for our sins, He was buried, and He rose again the third day. That when He rose again, He claimed victory over death and hell. And that if we put our full faith and trust in that work to do for us what we know we cannot do, to reconcile us to God, to cover our sin, then we will be saved. And the beginning of that is recognizing we have a need. You know, if you don't know you have a need, you'll never accept a solution. If there's a man and you're in a boat, and he's in the water, and he's flailing, and he's floundering, and you look at him and you say, that guy is drowning. And you get a life preserver, and you throw it out to him, and you say, hey, here you go, grab this, it will save you. And he's floundering, he says, no, no, I'm fine, thanks. And he's going under the water, and he gurgle, 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 and he comes up and just grab the, no, 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 I'm not drowning, I'm fine, thank you. If the man doesn't know he has a problem, he'll never pursue the solution. The law tells us we have a problem. Now there's other ways as well. There's other means by which we can find we have a problem. But when we come face to face with the holiness of God, with the reality of our incapacity, that's when we say, God, what must I do to be saved? And that's where the light of Jesus Christ shines and says it's Christ who is the way. It is Christ who is the truth. It is Christ who is the life. You want to get to God? Fall down at the cross. Plead the blood of Christ to do for you what you could not do for yourself. Other solutions have been suggested, haven't they? 
not just the law, not just Christ, other solutions. There's a world of people out there that are seeking solutions. There's some men that just blew themselves up in Paris seeking the solution to get themselves to God. They thought that that was going to get them to God. And now they pass into eternity and they stood before a righteous throne and they realized that they missed it. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Other claims have been made, other solutions have been sought, but none have proved sufficient. Christ alone meets that need. And the law, well, the law is not your enemy. The law is no longer, you're not under it. You have been redeemed from the curse of the law, Christ being made a curse for you. Christ has taken the curse of the law. If you're a believer in this room this evening or under the sound of my voice, then you are not under the law. It has no power over you. You have no obligation to it. The law is for the, the unlawful to show them their need. And yet it's still not your enemy. Satan is your enemy. False doctrine is your enemy. Don't make the law your enemy. Don't, don't, don't fight against the law of God. Now, those that have taken false doctrine and used the law to preach a false doctrine, the Judaizers, Paul's fighting that. But he's not contending against the law. He's contending against an improper use of the law. I don't contend against having knives in my house. I do contend when my daughters try to pick them up. It's not the knife that's the problem. It's the improper use of the knife that worries me. The law is not the problem. It's when the law is used, if I may put it this way, unlawfully. May God help us to understand the difference that the law is our ally. It took us by the hand and led us to Christ. And it can still be used today. Does it have to be used in order to lead someone to Christ? Not necessarily. They do need to recognize their sin. There's different ways you can do that. But the law can be an ally in that. The Ten Commandments can be your ally in that. It can help highlight the nature of sin and of people's incapacity to come to God. And that's fine and that's good. And so we find this evening, number one, the law is beneficial in revealing the character of God. Number two, the law is beneficial in revealing the character of man. Number three, the law does indeed guide men to Christ that they may be justified by faith. And may we understand the place of the law the limitations of the law and live through the life of the one who has fulfilled the law for us. Let's pray.